to Romans chapter 8. Last week we had the privilege when I was on vacation of hearing from Will Broadus, who's planting a church on the west side of Greenville in Welcome is the name of the town that he is kind of planting a church there in. And he talked about um, really what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus and was really encouraging for us as a church. This morning we're getting back to Romans 8 this week and next week. And then we'll have a couple weeks off from Romans 8, I think two weeks off from Romans 8, and then we'll be back into it again, into Romans 9 after that. So t- turn your Bibles to Romans 8. We're just going to be reading three little verses this morning, but they are incredibly powerful verses. And I'd encourage you to, although these verses are familiar, to listen to them as if you've never heard them before, all right? So let's stand and let's read God's word together. And the reason we stand is actually to acknowledge God, to worship God, and to give God thanks for his inerrant, infallible word. So um, it's not just tradition, it's actually an act of the way, one of the ways that we can worship God. So let's read his word together. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these wonderful, powerful promises that we have. God, thank you that you give us your promise and your purpose and and Lord, you even revealed a process that you are conforming us into your, your image and so that we might be glorified in you. God, I pray these verses would not be familiar to us, but they would be fresh to us. God, I pray that for each and every one of us here, we would take fresh hope and confidence and life through this wonderful promise in your word. God, I pray that you would empower me by your Holy Spirit as as I speak, that I would speak your words. And Lord, I pray that you would speak through me. Lord, I pray for all of us, for me and everyone here, that we would hear from you, that you would transform us even as we hear, that you would enable us to receive from you and to apply your word. Lord, may we worship you in how we listen to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I was to put on my pair of prescription sunglasses, this pair here, and I put them on like this, you might, you might think it's a little silly. They're, they're, like they're covered with tissue paper. You, you can't see out of them. They, they're, they're, they're obscured. They're prescription sunglasses, but they don't really do any good if you have something covering them, if, you, if you're not looking out through them clearly. You know, whenever we take road trips, I have my kids clean, they're typically one of my kids in the front seat and have them clean my glasses for me so that I can see clearly, so that I can see a way forward, so that we can go to where we want to go, so we can get to our destination. In, in life, sometimes, although God gives us all the tools to be able to follow him, sometimes life is 
foggy. It's confusing. Sometimes things block our vision. And in Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8, we've been seeing some of the things that block our vision. Some of the things that block our vision as Christians is we have our vision blurred by our own sin and our battle with sin. And that seems forefront in our vision, forefront in our eyes. And that's all we can see at times is our own indwelling sin. Can anybody relate to that? Anybody aware of your sin? And sometimes it blocks your perspective, it blocks your vision. Anybody have that happen to you? At other times, um, in Romans 8, it says that, you know, the, that we, although we're called and we're given the Spirit, and there's no condemnation, and we're set free in all these glorious truths, and we're made sons, that includes male and female alike, we're, we're given the privilege of sonship, and we've been made heirs, but at the same time, we grow weak in following the Spirit, and our weaknesses sometimes block our vision, my, I, sometimes I'm so aware of my inabilities that that's all I can see. I can't see a clear way forward. I don't know if anybody else can. Anybody here ever aware of your own weaknesses? And that seems to be all you can think about when you think about the future. And so it causes you to lose hope. If, I, I have those times. I'm aware of my sin at times. I'm aware of my weaknesses at times. That blocks my sight. It blocks my vision. It keeps me from seeing the way forward clearly. It keeps me from having confidence <laughs> And it'd be just as absurd if we're looking at only our weaknesses and only our sins. It'd be as absurd as if I took these glasses and put them on with the tissue paper in front of them and said that, you know what, I'm going to try to make my way forward in the Christian life when I'm looking at my sin and my weaknesses. And it, and it causes us to groan. We heard in Romans 8 that we groan, creation groans, and the Spirit, though, groans for us. But in the midst of hearing that wonderful truth that the Spirit is groaning, He's interceding, He's praying for us, and that one day He will glorify us. And really that's the, the frame of even this passage is, is the glorification, that glory that we will receive, and that's a wonderful privilege. But as we learned a few weeks ago in Romans 8, towards the, the middle there, it says, but, but that glory, it comes through suffering. And so sometimes you have sin, you have weakness, circumstances and suffering, it blocks our vision. And I don't know about you, but when I'm feeling crummy, anybody feel crummy, ever feel crummy, physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever, uh, those things can block your sight, they can block your vision, it can keep you from confidence and hope in God. And so, in that context, really, the Apostle Paul has has written this little passage right in the middle of all those things I've just been talking about. He's been going through in, in Romans 6 and 7 and 8, and actually even before that, he talks about how we can exchange the glory of God for images and other things and idols can get in our vision and cause us to lack confidence and hope in God. And so the Apostle Paul wrote these verses so that we might, in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of suffering, we would have confidence and hope. And, and by the way, who, who here doesn't want, who here doesn't want, that's a negative question, who here wants confidence and hope, right? Every, everybody, I'm assuming, wants to have confidence and hope in God. You see, we can't have confidence in our ability because we fail, we're weak. We can't have confidence in our ability to not sin because we are aware we sin. We can't have confidence in circumstances because we're aware the circumstances stink sometimes. We can't have confidence in good things happening all the time because you know what? Bad things happen. So where is the believer to have confidence? Where is a believer to have hope in God? How? 
How do we have confidence? Where does that confidence come from? What does that look like? That's the question I want all of us to wrestle with. And actually to be asking yourself, where is my confidence right now? Is it, is it like I've got glasses on? Am I letting circumstances or sin or weakness or am I letting my inability or suffering block my vision so that my confidence and my hope in God is blocked? If so, let's all take off our glasses that are smudged. Let's clean them off a little bit so we can see God clearly. And the main really idea that that God gets across to us, that I believe he, he wants us to have this morning, is that we can have confidence in God's promise. We can have confidence in God's promise, in God's purpose, and in, God's, in his plan, his process to make us like him and bring us to glory. What, what can we have confidence in life? The Apostle Paul is helping us see through God's Holy Spirit that we can have confidence in God's promise and his purpose and in his process to make us like him and bring us to glory. And let's not be distracted. Let's not be distracted by, by where we might lack confidence because we're not seeing God's promise. We're not seeing God's purpose and we're not seeing his process because God intends good things for us. He intends for our ultimate good. And so Paul's telling this Christian, he's telling the Christians in Rome, and he's, he's really through the Holy Spirit, even speaking to us today, that there is purpose in life. There is a plan in life. Sometimes you might be tempted to think that life is pointless. You might be discouraged at times. You think, think like life is meaningless. You might feel like it's random, like God is absent and yet right at the very outset of verse 28 i want you to look down your bibles we're we're given grounds for assurance and hope and confidence in this context as i said of of our sin our weakness and suffering we're given grounds wonderful incredible grounds for confidence and hope Look at verse 28. He, he lets us in the fact that the very reason we can have confidence in life is really the, the first idea we're going to pack, and it comes straight from verse 28. It's that God's promise is to work all things for our good. If you really get that as a believer, it's like taking those smudge glasses off and seeing clearly for the first time is that God promises to work all things for our good we got to look at what does good mean, because sometimes we can redefine good based on our own terms, right? But God promises, he promises to work all things for our good. Look at verse 28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If I make a promise to my children... And, and by the way, I, I try to limit those promises to things I, that I know I can do. And as, if you're a parent, you're probably wise to do that. Don't, don't over-promise and under-deliver. You're going to end up with disappointed kids, and it's not helpful. They won't trust you. So as a parent, it's a good practice. I can't remember what salesman once said it. It's not a sales tactic, but hey, let's, let's try to under-promise and over-deliver. The, the, as a parent, I, I, I make promises, some promises limited to my kids. I'll promise them ice cream, or I'll, I'll promise to pay them for a certain out of the norm chore or I'll promise them some other thing and the reason I promise them things is because I love them and I want good things for them but like I said the problem with me as a parent is I'm limited 
I, I don't have the ability often to do even the things I think I can do that I end up promising. You know, something happens. I promise my kids I'll take them out for ice cream or something. And something happens and somebody goes to the hospital. And I'm like, hey, kids, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Or some circumstance crops up or the car breaks down or whatever. And, and things are outside of my control. The wonderful truth of this verse, of these verses, is that God works. Look at those words. What kinds of things? You can say out loud. What kinds of things does God work? All things. And that, that word, that really does mean in English what it seems to mean. Um, it, it means that in, in the original language in Greek as well. All things means absolutely all things. So God is able to work all things. All things work together. Work together for good. We're not, we're not given the promise of understanding why bad things happen. We're not given the promise of understanding how he works things. And we want that sometimes. I don't know about you, but I, I, I want to know how. God, like, hang on, God. I don't understand this. This situation really stinks. This situation is painful. This situation is awful. How can you work this thing for my good? And, but we're not, we're not given the how, but we're given the promise that he does work all things. And he's able to work all things, even bad things, for our good. But we're not given either the how and we're not given the when. We don't know when in this life or the life to come. When we'll see those things being worked for our good. But we do know the what and we do know the who. We know that God, the what is, God works all things for what? For good. And we know who works all things so that our confidence and our hope is not in ourselves. Our confidence and our hope is in God. Who works all things? God works all things. He works all things. All things work together for good for those who love God. These verses, if you are struggling this morning, if you've been struggling with challenges in life, because, you know, sometimes life is challenging, isn't it? Sometimes life is hard and disappointing and bad things happen. Anybody here ever have something bad happen to you? No one? Okay, three people. Wow, you guys have a great life. Bad things happen all the time. Bad circumstances Suffering, weakness, sickness, sin, my sin, other people's sin. Bad things happen. How in the midst of bad things happening can you have confidence and hope? Well, you can have confidence and hope only really if you know and understand and grasp this promise that God promises that all things work together for good. In Romans 7, Paul had told us that we still battle these remnants of sin. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we feel like we can't get free from sin. Sometimes we're weak and we groan. We don't even know how to pray. In the midst of those things, we need to know that God works all things. That all things work together for good for those who love God. The question you need to ask yourself is, do I love God? I haven't been called by God. Now, it's not a conditional loving God, like how much do you love God? Do I love God enough for him to work all things? No, it's not a condition by which we earn God working all things for good. It's if you have love for God, if you desire to love God, that desire has been put there by God, you've been called by God, and so you can be sure that all things work together for your good, even if you don't understand how. 
it was good that my parents imposed limitations on me. I didn't feel that way when I was growing up. I, I didn't love limitations. How many, how many people here love to be limited? I mean, anybody here like, I love limitations and I love it when people tell me no. I mean, you're, you're, no, you're not being honest if that's you. I, I don't like people telling me no. I don't like to be told no. I don't like not getting what I want. I don't like being limited, but yet my parents, when I look back now, I can see they placed limitations on me. Those limitations, most of the time, 90% of the time probably, were for my good. And the other 10%, they thought they were for my good, even if they weren't. Those limitations resulted in goodness. They were for my good ultimately, either to keep me from something dumb and making a dumb mistake, you know. My parents limited me when I was little and said I wasn't allowed to jump off the roof. I mean, I, I wasn't, like, it's not a hypothetical. Um, I, I did dumb things as a kid. I would jump off of tall things as a kid. I, I would do all kinds of contests with my friends. Once I had a contest, to, we had this, this um, the school I went to in the basement was about, I don't know, it felt like two stories below the, the main floor. And so that it was like 30 feet down the stairs. And so we had a contest that I, I started of who could, who could jump from the furthest up to get to the bottom of the stairs. I, I, I wish that I had been limited. I wish that said, somebody said, That's, don't do that. I know you want to. That's going to be a thrill as you're in the air. But when you hit, your ankle's going to shatter, which is what happened. You know, I got lots of those stories where I, I wasn't limited, and later my parents were like, don't do that. I'm like, yeah, thanks now. You know, I, I once had a contest to see who could jump the furthest, and to, to meet the goal, I set up a little teepee of some popsicle sticks. That was a great idea, and I won, and I landed right on the popsicle stick and went up right through my foot. That wasn't for my good. I, what I wanted, what I thought was good, really wasn't good, but as a parent... And as my parents, they often would impose good limitations because they knew that unrestrained, I would do bad things. I would do things that weren't good for me, even if they weren't inherently morally bad. They also knew I would do things that were morally bad, too, because of the remaining nature of sin in my life. You know, as a toddler... If I wanted to stick a fork in a light socket, and I could imagine nothing better. And by the way, um, I, re- I remember our kids wanting to stick things in light sockets. And they can, you can just see it. And they can, they can think, this is the best thing. And I'm like, I don't know what draws kids to light sockets. I have, I have no idea. It's just two little holes in the wall. And why those holes? There's so many other holes in the house. They don't stick things in. Except for the, the registers. They stick our credit cards down there. But um, besides that... You know, so they could imagine nothing better than sticking something in that socket. And so we would keep them from that bad thing that would lead to worse things for them. And they would melt down and act like the world had ended. And cry and, and struggle. And it, it didn't keep me from wanting to prevent them from doing that, though. Because I love them. And I wanted what was good for them. And I wanted to keep them from things, even though they felt those things were going to be good. And partially because I remember me doing things that I thought were good and really were not good. Sometimes we, we can't understand. And see, why does God keep us from things that we believe are good and that are going to be 
wonderful. We think they're thrilling. We think they're going to give us what we want. And God says, no, you think that these idols are going to give what you want. I'm going to keep you from them. And so I'm not going to allow you to be wealthy for some because he wants our good. For others, he actually allows bad things to happen, not because he doesn't love us, but because he's shaping us. He wants our good. I don't like medicine often, and I hate the taste of NyQuil. I don't know what that flavor is that they put in there. It's some combination of licorice and death, and, and I hate both. And so, but I take it, I take medicine because I know it's beneficial for me, even if I don't, it doesn't taste good going down. And I don't like peas, but I know they're nutritionally good for me. Most of the time I eat them without complaining. Most of the time. I don't like the speed limit, but it's there for my good. The purpose is upright, it's protective, it's valuable to bring order to our society and keep people from doing dumb things. Sometimes I feel like I don't really need to obey the speed limit. You know, it's good to love and to serve other people. It's not only morally and and socially good, it's also right. But you know what? Sometimes I don't feel like doing what's good. Can can you relate? You ever ever feel like doing things that, that that really aren't good for you? There's other times that we are like children because, frankly, in comparison to God, we are children. Thankfully, he's our father. Because if we had a bad father, he would let us do bad things. But Sometimes we don't understand. Our understanding is limited. And yet God promises to work even the bad things that happen to us for good because he loves us. All throughout the Old Testament we see examples of that. You know, the, the, the frequent illustration used of, of, a, of a tapestry. And there's these really huge, beautiful tapestries that hang up in the Biltmore, if you haven't been there, in Asheville, uh, about an hour and a half from here, and it's these beautiful Flemish tapestries, and there's a whole series of them, and um, they hang on these walls, and they have a beautiful scene, but the backside of that tapestry is a mess. It's a, it's a series of, of interwoven threads that are jumbled. They don't look clear, and, and I, I still think that's a, it's a vivid illustration for us. We, we really only see, at times, the backside of the tapestry, But woven throughout, God is working all things, even the messy things, for good. Look throughout the Old Testament, you you see illustrations of men like Joseph. And Joseph actually said to his brothers, at the end, Joseph went through some horrible things. You remember the story of Joseph? Joseph, he he was thrown into a pit. He He was sold into slavery. He was put into Potiphar's house, and then in Potiphar's house, he was mistreated, wrongfully accused, put into prison, and then in prison, he works his way up, and then he's forgotten, left to rot. Joseph has like a 20-year span or so of crud in his life, and yet finally, when he comes face-to-face with his abusers, his brothers who threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery... They are afraid for their life, but Joseph, he takes off his glasses and he sees the bigger picture and he sees clearly and he says that what you intended for harm, God intended for good. And we see that all throughout the Old Testament. We see that example in Scripture. 
how God works all things together for good in the example of Tamar or Rahab the prostitute or Ruth or Bathsheba and God working some terrible things, some bad things together for the good. You see, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, they were all ancestors of Jesus. Now, God did work good things in their life while they were still living, but ultimately, they didn't see the final picture either. God takes evil, hard, and broken things, and he works them for our good. It doesn't minimize the difficulty. It doesn't minimize the suffering. It doesn't minimize our weakness. It doesn't minimize our sin. But it gives us perspective to be able to see and have confidence and hope in God that even when we, we don't understand, God, he redeems and he reclaims. You know, Washington, D.C., I grew up just outside of Washington, D.C., uh, in the boonies in Virginia, and then we moved closer to it. And um, one of the things historically that I, I loved discovering as a young boy because you see all these beautiful buildings and you see these um, wonderful kind of new architecture it's meant to astound it's meant to wow you it's 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 meant to be impressive it's it's meant to make you feel small it is the whole capital kind of the the dc mall there and all those buildings are spectacular but they're all built on reclaimed land washington dc was a swamp um, and i'm not talking politically no don't get into that i'm, I'm talking about physically Physically, it was a swamp. It was a physical swamp. And yet it was reclaimed for a wonderful purpose to, to have this grand seat of government, to have this, this place of grandeur. It was reclaimed swampland. And it's really astounding as you go through the National Mall, one of the, one of the prettiest kind of national places. And I, I love going to all the museums and galleries. And you think all of this was once on a swamp that's been reclaimed. If man can reclaim a physical swamp, how much more can God reclaim the swamp of our lives for his purposes? The swamp of life around us. Because that's what God does. He, he works all things together for the good of those who love him. And he promises that he'll reclaim the swamp of life for his far better purposes than any temporal buildings. And then Paul gives us another reason, the reason why we can be certain that this promise is going to happen. He gives us the reason is because we who love God, we've been divinely called by God, it says, according to his purpose. We've been called by God according to his purpose. If you love God, that means he's called you according to his purpose. And the reason you can be sure of his promise is because God's purposes never fail. His purposes never fail. And so the second big truth that we see here, why we can have confidence and hope in God, is because God's purpose is to conform us into the image of his son. We can have hope in God because he's purposing something greater. He's purposing building us into a temple. He's purposing building us into the very image of his son, of reclaiming our lives and building us into the image of his glorious son. And think about that. Think about Jesus for a moment. Jesus, the eternal one, the eternal son of God, made flesh, perfect in every way, completely blameless. And God says, you can have confidence and hope in me because I'm working all things for the good. And by the way, that good purpose I'm working together is far more glorious than you can imagine. And that is to make you like Jesus. 
Now you can become familiar with that. You can think, you know what, well, I know I'm going to be like Jesus. You can sing the songs, they have kids' songs, I want to be like Jesus, and it's a great song. But you can forget what that means. His, his, his perfection, his, his moral perfection and his desires and his and what he does, that is the ultimate purpose that God is working together is to conform us into the image of his very own glorious, perfect son. I, I can't wait for the day that I'm free from sin. Anybody here ever feel like that? Can, I can't wait for the day that I'm free from my own sin. So Paul's giving us hope in the midst of that. Remember Romans 7, our own sins, we battle with those. Paul's also giving us hope in the midst of the fact that other people sin against us, right? I can't wait till other people stop sinning against me. Anybody feel that way? I love it if people stop sinning against me. That would make a life easier on me, right? I would also love it if I wasn't so weak. And if other people weren't weak. Because let's face it, we're bothered by our own weaknesses and we're bothered by the weaknesses of others. That sounds awful to admit, but it's true. I can't wait for the day when I won't be weak anymore, when I won't be sinful anymore. And I can't wait for the day when I won't suffer anymore. But until then, my hope, my confidence is that God, his purpose is to make me into the image of his son. And he's doing that right now, even though I can't see it. And that one day, he ultimately, finally will conform me into his image fully. In the meanwhile, it's it's like we're a rough gemstone that's covered in muck and mire that he's polishing off and he's cutting and chipping away at because he wants us to be something brilliant. But you know, being chipped away at is kind of painful. Look in verse 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, And pay attention here, he predestined to do what? To be conformed to the image of his son. He foreknew you, he predestined you. If you you love God, that means you're called according to his purposes. If you respond to the call of God, place your faith in him, and you love him, then you can be sure he's foreknown you, he's predestined you, and so that you might be conformed, look in verse 29, to what? To the image of his son. How astounding is that? Do you ever think about all the glories of Christ? It's incredible he's predestined us to have all the glories of Christ. That's mind-boggling. That's scandalous. It seems wrong to even say. And it says, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's the firstborn of a new creation as a human. And so we are to be the firstborn as a a brand new creation, just like him. I, I long for that day. Do you long for that day? You can say yes, it's okay. You can, you can be loud in church. His ultimate purpose is to mold us into the image of his son and, and to glorify us. I, I don't even get that. And he says, he, he, for those whom he foreknew, and, and, and foreknew, it, it normally means that to know something ahead of time, know something before, but it, it's something different here because all of these words he uses, he says, he, those he foreknew, those he predestined, he conformed that they might be the firstborn, and then he talks about being glorified. So it's not just everyone who God knows. It's not talking about just God knowing something ahead of time. It's saying these people who God has known He's also predestined and called. And he's called, he's also justified, he's justified, and we'll see this in a minute. He's also glorified. 
You see, whatever God is the subject of, of foreknowledge in the New Testament, this word is used, it always means to know in the sense of entering into relationship, to choose beforehand, to, to foreknow us. Like when the Old Testament, God says, I've, I've known you. I've called you by name. I've known you as my child. God foreknows us personally. It's this personal, specific, covenantal love and choosing, this knowing personally ahead of time. I saw you before you were ever born. He tells David, I, I knit you in your mother's womb. I, I knew you. doesn't mean he was just aware of David. He's aware of all humankind. He holds all, all of humanity, so he, he knows who all of humanity is. It's not just a who he knows. It's that this special knowledge, this special knowledge beforehand of who would be his. When Jesus said in Matthew on the final day, he says, some will come claiming to be his disciples and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all kinds of miracles in your name? He said, hey, depart from me. I never knew you. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know who they were or he didn't recognize them or somehow Jesus was finite and no longer infinite in his understanding. What it mean was he did not have a covenantal relationship with them. And so we, we see when God says those he foreknew. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. If you love God, if you've responded to his call, place your faith in him, you can be confident he has foreknown you. And if he's foreknown you, here's some other good news. He's predestined you. He's predestined you. He that, that word is used six times in, in, in the New Testament in the context in each and every case. It, it, it means just what it sounds like. It's, it's predetermined outcome, a deciding beforehand. It's, it has everything to do with God decreeing from eternity. It always has to do with God foreordaining and appointing beforehand. That, that God is like the master captain of a, of a ship and he's setting course and he's setting a direction he is predetermined predestined where you're heading and he sets the course but but unlike a normal ship's captain god is the one who will make sure it gets there i like the way john murray put it he says this isn't the foresight of difference but the foresight that makes difference to exist not a foresight that recognizes existence, but the foreknowledge that determines existence. God has foreknown you, and it determines your very existence. And as he's foreknown you, he's predestined you. And the wonderful truth that you can rest in, you can hope in, have confidence in a believer is, God, no matter what it feels like, sometimes I feel like my sin is overwhelming. I say, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Not only is there no condemnation, he's actually predestined me to be formed to his image, even if I don't understand how. In the midst of my weakness, he's predestined me to be conformed to his image. In the midst of suffering, he's predestined me to be conformed into his image. That's what the Apostle Paul's telling us. God has purposed and planned. He's chosen the destiny of our lives. He set the course so that we will reach our desired destination and his desired destination for us. Nothing can set us off his course. The storms of life that might beat your ship, they might crash against the hull of your life, they might, you might be tossed around, but you can have confidence knowing that you will arrive at God's final port of call. And what God's predestined us to is to be conformed to the image of Christ. You know, so many of the problems that I have in life, 
if I'm really honest, it's not as much the, the bad things happening and illness and sickness. It's, it's, it's due to me not being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, that's not to minimize the, the very real problems of sickness and disease and when calamity and bad circumstances and other people's horrific sins against us. Don't minimize those things. Life's full of plenty of bad things, and some things are indeed really, really bad. And as Christians, we shouldn't ignore that. We shouldn't act like things aren't bad. That's not what the scripture's saying, that, hey, everything's gonna be okay. Every little thing's gonna be all right. No, that's, that's not, sorry, that's a Bob Marley song, I think. Um, that's not this verse. It's not saying that. It's not saying everything's going to be all right. What it's saying is that when everything is not all right, God is in the process of making you right. And if I step back for a minute I, in my own personal life, I, most of my struggles are not external, but they're internal. You know, how, how, many, how many of us have seen a person whose body was riddled with weakness or sickness or even deformity who possessed a character of spirit that was remarkable? I have talked to people who have had horrific things happen to them and yet they image Jesus in a glorious way as they trust in him despite the crud. Watching my own family members, watching my mom go through cancer and die trusting in God was, is glorious. Cancer is not glorious, it's bad. But God was conforming her into his image. God's conforming us into his image. And it will be glorious. There's a story of a guy named, um, I can't pronounce his last name very well. <laughs> uh, Vic, Nick Vujovic or something like that. Vujovic. He's, a, he's a, a man who was born with no arms and no legs. Something that I think we all would say is bad. And rightly so. It's not good for humans to be born with no limbs, right? And that's, and that's good. We can acknowledge it. Say it's not good. It's not good for humans to be born with no arms, no legs. And for many years, we have the story of Nick, he, he shared it on, 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 a, on a Christian post, and he says that he questioned why he was born that way. And he says he spent over eight years asking God, why? Why was I born this way? Why? Why? I don't understand how you can say you love me when you allow me to stay in this pain. I mean, maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there now. Maybe you're understanding why. The story's encouraging. He's, he, was, he was born, his dad ended up being a pastor. His mom was a nurse. There was no medical explanation for his deformity at the time. And he was desperate. He was angry at God. And yet, it, it says that he, he writes, I got the answer to my desperate prayers he says in John 9, 1 through 3, it spoke to me in a special way. The, and the New Testament reads, as, as he went, Jesus went along, he saw a blind man, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so... The, the Life Without Limbs author, which is the book that he's written, he describes his feeling after reading these verses. He says, I got goosebumps on my skin I don't even have. And I had faith because I understood something. You see, all I wanted to know was what God knew, was that God knew what he was doing with me. 
All I wanted to know is that God, God knew what he was doing with me. The desire in, to have arms and legs has remained. Vujovic, or however you pronounce that guy's name, admitted. <laughs> Initially, he thought, Lord, if you give me arms and legs, I'll go around the world and share your power with the world. He said he still has ups and downs in life. I'm just like you. I fail God every single day, but I've relied on Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Nick recalled he and he shares the story of him and, him and a few dozen friends. They were desperate and he was on some jungle farm in India. And so they prayed for a dozen of his friends prayed for 90 minutes for his arms and his legs to grow. And they, it's a little strange, they made arms and legs of clay. They prayed that God would turn them to flesh and bone. It didn't happen. But after that, he, he had peace as he, as he realized that, wait a minute, God is actually happy with my faith to pray. You know, he says, please give me arms and legs. But if you don't give me arms and legs, I trust in you. And that's been Nick's prayer. He said his commitment to Jesus is to want his plan and not my plan, even when I don't understand. You are praying for something, he says, but what if God says no to that? Is he still God? Yes. Will he waste your pain? No. And he quotes Romans 8, 28. And then Nick, who's traveled around the world sharing his story of millions, he said he's grateful to God for saving him from the two biggest disabilities he's ever had, sin and death. He says, I found the purpose of my existence and also the purpose of my circumstance. This bad circumstance. There's a purpose for why you're in the fire, he says. If God can use a man without arms and legs to be his hands and feet, then he will certainly use any willing heart. We might not understand it, but God is conforming us into his image and what a glorious purpose he has. As Christians, we don't pretend to understand all that happens in life, and we don't pretend that all of life is good, and we shouldn't, and we should grieve when bad things happen to us and other people. But in the midst of our grief, don't let it cloud your vision. In the midst of your sin, in the midst of weakness, in the midst of suffering, see that God is able to work all things, even those things, together for your good. And that good is being conformed into his image. And what more could you want than to be like Jesus in the end? You want riches? Don't they pale in comparison? You want health? What if you had health but you weren't in Christ? What if you had everything you ever wanted and fame and fortune and everybody loved you and praised you here on earth and yet you died being more like the devil. What you think is your good often is not what is your good. Whatever you're trying to hang on to and hold on to in life, realize that ultimately God knows what is for your good. And that's to be like Jesus. And there's no better good than that. Because there is no one more good than Jesus. Do you get that? God's working good there's no one more good than Jesus. The good he's working is for making you like Jesus. And he's able to work all things. Sin corrupted the image of God in the Garden of Eden, and man could not carry out his purpose to glorify God. And yet now God promises to remake us into the image of his Son so that we might 
glorify him and image him and reflect him. Now, sometimes we see that. Sometimes I can see that um, I sin and I repent and I'm convicted of my sin. And sometimes I see that actually conviction and awareness of my struggle with sin, it actually humbles me and that's good. Sometimes I get, that happens. Sometimes I can see when circumstance situations affect me. Sometimes I can see that outcome. I can see that, you know what? That kept me from making a mistake in life and following a career path that I thought would be fulfilling, which actually would take me far from God. Or sometimes I see that, you know what? God kept me from riches because, he, because I would be so tempted by the deceitfulness of riches. And sometimes I can see those things. Sometimes you can see must hear, but that not all respond to. Because this, he's talking about a call that happens. So this is not just a generic call of evangelism and everybody calling and saying you must repent and believe. No, this is an effectual calling because it's the kind of calling that ends up in justification and glorification. We recently dog sat, and I won't tell you whose dog we sat for. It was a great dog. We loved him, but the kind of, but the dog, I love giving him back too. Um, the dog didn't always listen. I would call this dog Biff. I'll make it up. And um, I would say, hey, Biff. And sometimes the dog would like look at me like, no. And just, just turn the other way. And I was offended. It wasn't an effectual call. I called the dog ignored. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the kind of call that Jesus called Lazarus when Lazarus was dead in the tomb and Lazarus couldn't even hear. It's the call that penetrated dead ears, the call that awakened and made alive dead ears so that Lazarus could hear. It's the call that not only did that, it's the call that empowered Lazarus, that raised him from the dead and enabled him to respond so that Lazarus came forth. If you have trusted in God, if you love God, if you have been called and responded to his call, you can be certain, not only is he conforming you to his image, but God has called you and empowered you, and God is raising you up to be made in his image, and he's justified you, and one day he will completely glorify you. His calling is effectual and sure. His justification is sure and his glorification is sure. I love the way that Greek lexicons describe this word for glorified. It's, it's to make glorious, to adorn with luster, to clothe with splendor, to impart glory. Think about it. God already sees you, even though it's not fully happened yet. It's not, it's not happened yet. You're not glorified yet. But the reason why he uses this past tense verb is because it's already considered done. It's so secure, so sure. His effectual predestination and calling of you is so sure. It's as if you are already completely glorified. You can be sure. You can have hope. You can have confidence. That's wonderful. And think about it. God, God is actually going to glorify us? That just seems astounding. Because we're aware of weakness, we're aware of sin, we're aware of frailty, we, we're aware of our undeserving. And God says, no, I love you, I've foreknown you, I've called you, i predestined you. And the reason I did all those things was to make you into my image so that you might be glorified and that you might glorify me as I give you my glory. He created man 
in glorious perfection to point back to the even greater glory of God. One day we get to do that. We can be sure it will happen. The poet John Donne, if you're familiar with John Donne, one of my favorite poets, he once got to preach a sermon to the king at court. He was a devout believer and he was preaching about how God would remake us into his glorious image. And I love how John Donne put it. He says, and, and, and get this, I think I have a quote for you. He says, I shall be so like God. Now this sounds scandalous. This is what scripture's saying. I shall be so like God as that the devil himself shall not know me from God. So far as to find any more place to fashion a temptation upon me than upon God nor to conceive any more hope of my falling from that kingdom than God's being driven out of it. That's an astounding inheritance. He might give us the inheritance of his own son. That's mind-boggling. And yet we can have hope and confidence in this life no matter what. We just need to take off the, our blinders, take off our foggy lenses and see this glorious hope in the midst of Sin, weakness, suffering. We can trust him to get us to our destiny. He's already determined it for us. Even through suffering, even through sin, even through weakness, if you love God, you can be assured he knows you personally. He's predestined you. He's called you. He's, he's justified you, and he certainly will glorify you. You're going to encounter hardship. You're going to encounter sin. You're going to encounter weakness. You're going to encounter suffering. Paul's told us all of those things, but he said in the midst of those things, you can have assurance and hope, confidence. No one can stop God's plans. No one can stop his purposes. No one can hold back his hand. And next week we get to see that if God is for us, who could be against us? If he didn't spare his son, how will he not also with his son freely give us every good thing? Every good thing in this context. Every good thing that conforms us into his image. Not, not this ridiculous American dream that you're going to have everything that you feel like is good that you want. But every good thing that makes you more like Jesus. That makes you a beautiful, brilliant reflection of the glory of God. You know, I, I wouldn't hesitate, and I think most parents here would not hesitate to give their children good things. Unfortunately, not all people here grew up with parents like that. I also wouldn't hesitate to use whatever means I have to ensure the ultimate safety and security of my kids. And I, I think if you're a parent, you, you have that desire. The problem is you can't carry it out. I, I sent my, 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 six, my soon-to-be 16-year-old out yesterday with a driver's ed teacher, and I'm thinking, I don't know that I really trust her. <laughs> uh, but I ultimately trust God. You know, shows up in this old vehicle that's, I'm like, I don't know that that's the best car, you know. She shows up and says, hey, by the way, air conditioning doesn't work. I'm like, oh, man, that's not going to be such a good ride. I can't, I'm not in control. I can't ultimately do what, what is best and ultimately make safe and secure. God ultimately is the, the best loving father who's perfect in every way, who wants only what is good and best for us in the context of being made into his image. If that's the good, if that's how we define good. Because it's how God defines good. I, I like how, what John Piper says about these verses. He has a book called Future Grace. If you haven't read it, I'd recommend it. I have the quote for you. 
He says, if you live inside this massive promise, your life is more stable and solid than Mount Everest. Nothing can blow you over when you're inside the walls of Romans 8.28. Outside of Romans 8.28 is confusion, anxiety, and fear, and uncertainty. Outside this promise of all-encompassing future grace, there are straw houses of drugs and alcohol and numbing TV and dozens of futile diversions. There are slat walls and tin roofs of fragile investment strategies and fleeting insurance coverage and trivial retirement plans. There's cardboard fortifications of deadbolt lives and alarms and and, and ballistic missiles. Outside, there are thousands of substitutes for Romans 8, 28. Once you walk through the door of love into the massive, unshakable structure of Romans 8, 28, and I would say through verse 30, everything changes. It's like removing those glasses and you see clearly. He goes on to say, there comes into your life stability and depth and freedom. You simply can't be blown away anymore. The confidence that a sovereign God governs your good and bad and all the pleasures you'll ever experience is an incomparable refuge and security and hope and power for your life. Living inside the good of those verses, it's, it's like living inside the strongest hurricane shelter ever in the midst of a storm. Nothing can stop God from his good purpose and And these verses are meant to give us unshakable, massive confidence to help us see clearly in the midst of sin, weakness, and suffering. We have an an undefeatable confidence, an undefeatable hope in God, in His promises, in His purpose, in His process to make us into His image and to bring us to glory. Let's pray. Father, I pray that these verses wouldn't be old hat to us. I pray that they wouldn't be overly familiar. But God, I pray that we'd be astounded that you, you promised to do what is truly good for us, to make us into the image of your son. I pray, I pray that we would actually give worship to you in the midst of all the bad things that happen. I pray that we would turn all the good things back to you and realize that, Lord, may you use all things for our good, Lord, I pray that we would have fresh confidence in you, that no matter what frailties, weaknesses, sickness we face, what challenges relationally, personally, emotionally, mentally we face, God, I pray we would have confidence and hope in you and your promise, your purpose, your plan. God, I pray we'd have fresh excitement and hope for the fact that you already see us as glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.